Chapter Twelve of In the Mayor's Parlor by J. S. Fletcher. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Circumstantial evidence. Interest was beginning to thicken. The people in court, from Simon Crood, pompous and aloof in his new grandeur of chief magistrate, to Spizey the bellman, equally pompous in his ancient livery, were already open-mouthed with wonder at the new and startling development but the sudden advent of the young and pretty domestic whose tears betrayed her unwillingness to come forward deepened the interest still further everybody leaned forward towards the centre of the court intent on hearing what the girl had to tell she however paid no attention to these manifestations of inquisitiveness standing in the witness-box the tear-soaked handkerchief in her hands half sullen half resentful of mouth and eye she looked at nobody but the coroner her whole expression was that of a defenceless animal pinned in a corner and watchful of its captor but this time it was not the coroner who put questions to the witness there had been some whispering between him hawthwaite and meeking the barrister who represented the police authorities and it was meeking who turned to the girl and began to get her information from her by means of bland suavely expressed half-suggesting interrogatories winifred wilson twenty years of age housemaid at dr wellesley's been in the doctor's employ about fourteen months did you give certain information to the police recently asked meeking going straight to his point as soon as these preliminaries were over information bearing on the matter now being inquired into yes sir replied the witness in a low voice was it relating to something that you saw in dr wellesley's house on the evening on which mr wallingford was found dead in the mayor's parlour yes sir what was it that you saw the girl hesitated evidently on the verge of a fresh outburst of tears she compressed her nether lip looked fixedly at the ledge of the witness-box don't be afraid said meeking we only want the truth tell that and you've nothing to be afraid of nor to reproach yourself with now what did you see the girl's answer came in a whisper i saw dr wellesley you saw your master dr wellesley where did you see dr wellesley on the hall staircase sir on the hall staircase that i suppose is the main staircase of the house very well now where were you up on the top landing sir what were you doing there i'd just come out of my room sir i'd been getting dressed to go out and how came you to see your master i heard a door open on the landing below sir and i just looked over the banister to see who it was who was it dr wellesley sir dr wellesley what was he doing he'd just come out of the drawing-room door sir are you sure he'd come out of that particular door well sir i saw him close it behind him what happened then he stood for a minute sir on the landing doing anything no sir just standing and what then he went downstairs sir and disappeared he went towards the surgery sir how was the staircase lighted when you saw all this well sir there was a light in the hall at the foot of the staircase and there was another on the drawing-room landing then you could see dr wellesley quite clearly yes sir how was he dressed 
He'd his surgery jacket on, sir, a white linen jacket. You saw Dr. Wellesley quite clearly, wearing a white linen jacket and coming out of the drawing-room door. Now I want to ask you about the drawing-room. Is there another room, a small room, opening out of Dr. Wellesley's drawing-room? Yes, sir. How big is it? Well, sir, it's a little room, not very big, sir. What is it used for? What is there in it now? Nothing much, sir, some bookcases and a desk and a chair or two. Is there a door on its father's side, the side next to the moot hall? Yes, sir. Have you ever seen it open? No, sir, never. You don't know where it gives access to? No, sir. Might be a cupboard, eh? I always thought it was a cupboard door, sir. Very good. Now I want you to be very particular about answering my next question. What time was it when you saw Dr. Wellesley come out of his drawing-room? It would be just about a quarter to eight, sir. Are you quite sure about that? Quite sure, sir. Did anything fix the time on your mind? Yes, sir. At least I heard the clock strike the quarter past six. You're sure it was a quarter to eight o'clock that you heard? Yes, sir, quite sure. Why are you quite sure? The witness reddened a little and looked shyly aside. Well, sir, I'd got to meet somebody outside the house at a quarter to eight o'clock, she murmured. I see. Did you meet him? Yes, sir. Punctually? I might have been a minute late, sir. The clocks had done striking. Very good. And just before they began to strike, you saw Dr. Wellesley come out of his drawing-room door. Yes, sir. Meeking suddenly dropped back into his seat and began to shuffle his papers. The coroner glanced at Cotman, and Cotman, with a cynical smile, got to his feet and confronted the witness. Was it your young man that you went out to meet at a quarter to eight o'clock that evening? he asked. Yes, sir, admitted the girl. What's his name? Joe Green, sir. Did you tell Joe Green that you'd just seen Dr. Wellesley come out of his drawing-room? No, sir. Why not? Because I didn't think anything of it, sir. You didn't think anything of it. And pray, when did you begin to think something of it? Well, sir, it was... it was when the police began asking questions. And of whom did they ask questions? Me and the other servants, sir. Dr. Wellesley's servants? Yes, sir. How many servants has Dr. Wellesley? Four, sir, and a boy. So the police came asking questions, did they? About Dr. Wellesley. What about him? Well, sir, it was about what we knew of Dr. Wellesley's movements on that evening, sir, where he was from half-past seven to eight o'clock. Then I remembered, sir. And told the police? No, sir, not then. I said nothing to anybody at first. But you did later on. Now, to whom? The witness here began to show more signs of tearfulness. Don't cry, said Cotman. Whom did you first mention this to? Well, sir, it was to Mrs. Lane. I got so upset about it that I told her. Who is Mrs. Lane? She's the lady that looks after the girls' friendly society, sir. Are you a member of that? Yes, sir. So you went and told Mrs. Lane all about it? Yes, sir. What did Mrs. Lane say? 
She said I must tell Mr. Hawthwaite, sir. Did she take you to Mr. Hawthwaite? Yes, sir. And you told him all that you have told us now? Yes, sir. Mrs. Lane said I must. You didn't want to, eh? Here the girl burst into tears, and Cotman turned to the coroner. I have no further questions to put to this witness, sir, he said, but I would make a respectful suggestion to yourself. That is, that my client, Dr. Wellesley, should be called at once. We know now that the police have been secretly working up a case against Dr. Wellesley. In fact, I am very much surprised that, ignoring these proceedings altogether, they have not gone to the length of arresting him. Perhaps that's a card which Superintendent Hawthwaite still keeps up his sleeve. I may tell him, on behalf of my client, that he's quite welcome to arrest Dr. Wellesley and bring him before the magistrates whenever he likes. But as Dr. Wellesley's name has been very freely mentioned this morning, I think it will be only fair, sir, that he should be allowed to go into that box at once, where he will give evidence on oath. If Dr. Wellesley elects to go into the box, interrupted the coroner, I shall, of course, warn him in the usual way, Mr. Cotman. He is not bound to give any evidence that might incriminate himself, but no doubt you have already made him aware of that. Dr. Wellesley is very well aware of it, sir, replied Cotman. I ask that he should be allowed to give evidence at once. Let Dr. Wellesley be called, then, said the coroner. That, of course, perhaps, will be best. Brent inspected Wellesley closely as he stepped into the witness-box. He was a well-set-up, handsome man, noted in the town for his correct and fashionable attire, and he made a distinguished figure as the centre-point of these somewhat sordid surroundings. That he was indignant was very obvious. He answered the preliminary questions impatiently. There was impatience, too, in his manner, as after taking the oath he turned to the coroner. It seemed to Brent that Wellesley's notion was that the point-blank denial of a man of honour was enough to dispose of any charge. This time the coroner went to work himself, quietly and confidentially. Dr. Wellesley, he began, leaning over his desk, I need not warn you in the way I mentioned just now. I'm sure you quite understand the position. Now, as you have been in court all the morning, you have heard the evidence that has already offered itself. As regards the evidence given by your assistant, Dr. Carstairs, as to your movements and absence from the surgery between 7.30 and 7.49, is that correct? Wellesley drew himself to his full height and spoke with emphasis. Absolutely. And the evidence of the young woman, your housemaid, is she correct in what she told us? Quite. The coroner looked down at his papers his spectacle eyes wandering about them as if in search of something. Suddenly he looked up. "'There's this matter of the handkerchief, or portion of a handkerchief,' he said, picked up, we are told, from the hearth in the mayor's parlour, where the rest of it had been burned. Did you hear Mrs. Mariner's evidence about that, Dr. Wellesley?' "'I did.' "'Is what she said, or suggested, correct? Is the handkerchief yours?' I have never seen the handkerchief, or rather the remains of it. I heard that some portion of a handkerchief, charred and blood-stained, was found on the hearth in the mayor's parlour, and that it had been handed over to Superintendent Hawthwaite, but I have not had it shown to me. The coroner glanced at Hawthwaite, 
who since the opening of the court had sat near Meeking, occasionally exchanging whispered remarks. "'Let Dr. Wellesley see that fragment,' he said. All eyes were fixed on the witness as he took the piece of charred and faintly stained stuff in his hands and examined it. Everybody knew that the stain was from the blood of the murdered man. The same thought was in everybody's mind. Was that stain now being critically inspected by the actual murderer? Wellesley suddenly looked up, at the same time he handed back the fragment to the policeman who had passed it to him. "'To the best of my belief,' he said, turning to the coroner, "'that is certainly part of a handkerchief of mine. The handkerchief is one of a dozen which I bought in Paris about a year ago.' A murmur ran round the crowded court at this candid avowal. As it died away, the coroner again spoke. "'Had you missed this handkerchief?' "'I had not. I have a drawer in my dressing-room full of handkerchiefs, several dozens of them. But, from the texture, I am positive that that is mine.' "'Very well,' said the coroner. "'Now, about the evidence of Mr. Walkershaw. Did you know of the door between your house and the moot hall?' "'Yes. So did the late mayor.' As a matter of fact, he and I, some time ago, had it put to rights. We both used it. I to go into the moot hall, he to come and see me. There was no secrecy about it, then? Not between Wallingford and myself, at any rate. The coroner took off his spectacles and leaned back in his chair, sure sign that he had done. And Meeking rose, cool and level voice. Dr. Wellesley, I think you heard the evidence of Mrs. Saumarez. But before Dr. Wellesley could make answer, the other doctors present in the courtroom were suddenly called into action. As the barrister pronounced her name, Mrs. Saumarez collapsed in her seat, fainting. End of chapter 12